Welcome to LifePoint Church. Our mission is to glorify God and make gospel-driven disciples by engaging people in the unexpected joy of a life more and more dependent on Jesus. Malachi 2:17 and 3:1 through 5. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does good, I'm sorry, by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Life is unfair. It just is. And I think most people would agree that life on our planet is just not what it should be. Philip Liancey, some years ago, wrote a book called Disappointment with God. And he recounts stories of many people who find life is unfair. One such man was Douglas, whom he calls Douglas. He said he was like a modern Job. He was a model of faithfulness. But then his wife got breast cancer and she had to undergo surgery. But later the cancer spread to her lungs and she had to do chemotherapy. And he had to take over much of the household duties and everything else in the house in addition to his full-time job. By the way, he'd given up his career in order to start an urban ministry among the poor in his community. And then in the middle of that crisis, he was driving with his wife and his 12-year-old daughter when a drunken driver swerved across the center line and hit them head on. His wife was shaken, but she was okay. His 12-year-old daughter had several severe cuts on her face and her arms from the windshield glass as it shattered. But he suffered a severe brain concussion. And as a result, he had headaches 
almost daily. He could no longer work more than a couple of hours at a time. He lost his sense of balance, and he couldn't even walk up and down the stairs without some assistance. He had to relearn how to control his hands so that he could feed himself. And one eye was just wandering all over the place. He loved to read, but now he could not read more than maybe one page at a time. And when Phil Yancey asked him, well, have you been disappointed with God? And he said, well, life is unfair, but I'm not sure that that means that God is unfair. That's the real question, isn't it? Life is unfair, but does that mean that God is unfair? Now, if God is creator, and he's in control of his universe, then why are things going so wrong? If he is powerful and sovereign, then why does he allow injustices of all kinds to multiply in our world and in our lives? Many of you are experiencing when bad things happen to good people. But what exactly is Malachi talking about when he says, where is the God of justice? Well, is God involved in this at all? Is he really responsible for this? The Jews of Malachi's day, the Jews that lived in Jerusalem and Judah, they agreed on this. Life should be fair because God is fair. Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, articulates their complaint against God. They said, everyone who, takes, who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. And then they ask, where is the God of justice? Now let me put that into plain English. These people were saying, there are some of our people who do evil things, but God does nothing to punish them. He lets them get away with it. In fact, they seem to be doing better than we are. It's like he takes delight in them. How can that be fair? It's when good things happen to bad people. And yet, the Jews of Malachi's day were saying, in our scriptures, Deuteronomy chapter 32, God is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So how can a just God allow good things to happen to bad people. It just isn't fair. But the Jews of Malachi's audience, they were cynical. They were accusing God to his face. They were angry. 
and they blamed God. And so Malachi, he starts out, he says, what are you saying against God? He's just sick and tired of it. You're a wearisome people to him. When I read that, I thought, wow. God gets tired and weary of me. What, what I say in prayer, the, the meditations of my inner thoughts, does God ever get weary of hearing me talk? He was weary of these people in Israel. We need to be careful. Even when we are discouraged and depressed and disappointed, we need to be careful how we talk to God. But the Jews of Malachi's day, they were clenching their fist and they were shouting out, where is the God of justice? And God's answer to them is found in Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Now, I have to admit to you, when I read those verses, and that his, God's answer to their question, I'm a little bit surprised. It's really not what I would expect. The thing that surprises me about God's answer to their complaints and about unfairness and, and justice, that he doesn't talk about their actual situation. He doesn't have any response to about what is going on in their current life. Instead, he talks about what he's going to do in the future. Why doesn't he talk about what's bothering me right now? Look at what he says. Verses 1 through 5. Now, I put all of these on the board, and we'll come back to these later one by one, so don't get overwhelmed by that. But I think it's good that we just enumerate what he says in his answer. First of all, he says, he will send a messenger as a forerunner to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And second, the Lord himself will come as a messenger of the covenant. He will return to his temple and he will bring justice to his people. And then for third, the Lord will be like a refining fire and our launderer's soap to purify the people. And fourth, the Lord will judge and cleanse them of their sins so that their worship is pure and clean. And finally, he says, the Lord will not consume you. Now let's go through and examine each one of those one by one. And then we'll draw some conclusions at the end. First, God says he will send a messenger to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. Malachi is the first and only prophet to reveal that there will be a forerunner coming before the Lord to prepare his way. And later in chapter four of Malachi, 
he reveals that this forerunner is Elijah. And Elijah, remember, was the servant of the Lord who never actually died, but was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. He was also one who appeared with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Now, this prophecy about the forerunner was fulfilled in both the first coming of Christ and the second coming. In the first coming in the New Testament, Jesus declares that John the Baptist represents this Elijah, who is the voice of one crying in the wilderness saying, prepare you the way of the Lord. In the second coming, we see in Revelation chapter 11, it says there will be two witnesses who come to Jerusalem to prepare the way for the return of the Messiah to reign on earth. And most scholars believe that Elijah is one of those two witnesses. There will be a forerunner before he comes. But second, Malachi says, the Lord will come to his temple to bring justice to his people. Now this coming of the Lord is identified to happen on the day of the Lord. That is specified in chapter four of this book. And the descriptions he gives about the Lord who is coming for example, he says he is the messenger of the covenant who will return to the temple. And Jesus is the one he is talking about, the Son of God. Jesus himself did come to the temple, and he called it my Father's house. And he cleansed the temple, and he said it was, should be called a house of prayer for all people. The Lord in Malachi 4.1 is clearly prophesying about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so Malachi says two things about the coming of the Messiah. It will be sudden or unexpected, and it will be unpleasant. Who can endure the coming of the Lord? Now, that's a surprising thing to say, because the Jews of this day were expecting the Lord to come, but they were expecting a day of vindication and victory and restoration of the kingdom. And to, for him to say, this is not going to be a fun time. So third, Malachi says, the, the Messiah will come on the day of the Lord, and he will be like a refiner's fire. That's where the unpleasantness comes. And he will come to cleanse and purify his people. Now this is a new and amazing description of Christ as he deals with the sinfulness of his people. Now notice, it's a refiner's fire. This is, get the picture of a silversmith or a goldsmith who's stoking the fire until it melts and burns out the dross and impurities of the metal. 
It is not to destroy the silver, but it is to make it pure. But it is a fire. It is burning. It is painful. It is not a pleasant experience, but it produces something that is beautiful and precious. Then Malachi says, God will judge and deal with the sins practiced by his people. And he lists them in verses 4 and 5. And you can see these verses, and you need to realize they are an explanation, an expansion of this work of refining fire. And he will judge them and purge them of these sins. And he names some of them. Sorcery, which were the occult practices probably introduced to them by their Persian tyrant leaders. He will purge them of adultery, especially the unfaithfulness in marriage that we discussed last, last week in the previous text. And he will purge out false witnesses and those who perjure themselves in bearing witness against their neighbors and other innocent victims. And especially, he will purge out those who exploit the poor and the marginalized. And he lists several of these social injustices against the widows, against orphans, against immigrant strangers, and against workers. These were people who were exploited and abused and manipulated and crushed, even by some of the Jews themselves. The God of refining fire says he will judge them and purge them of all of these sins. But finally, of this refiner's fire, he promises, will not consume them. That's sort of evident in the term itself, a refiner's fire. This is not a fire to consume and destroy. But in verse 6, God makes it very clear that he will keep his covenant promise to Jacob, and he will not destroy them. Verse 6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Now remember back in chapter 1, the first section that we preached on explains that how God had chosen Jacob over his twin brother Esau, and he was now God's chosen son, and he would never go back on his promise to them. He would never consume them. They were his. So what is God's purpose in explaining all of this? This is what he's going to do. What is he driving at? Well, he says and explains this in verses 3, the last verse 3 and verse 4. He says, he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and then they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord, 
Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. He's talking about their worship and bringing the sacrifices and their worship to God. You see, God's plan in all of this refining and purifying is so that he can make their lives not comfortable, not to erase all the injustices of this life, but to purify them so that they can worship him as the one and true God. God's purpose, you see, is that I want, desire, and I deserve worship that is worthy of my name. And that is what I desire more than anything else. That people would worship him in a manner that is worthy to the glory of his name. First Chronicles says it very clearly, for great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and he is to be feared above all gods. Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter 12, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. God deserves and desires worship worthy of his name above everything else. This is the amazing prophecy of Malachi, and it reveals to us what God is all about, what he's planning to do in the future. He will come to his people as the God of justice to purify them so that they can serve him and worship him in a worthy manner. I think we need to let that sink in. We need to see what is happening in our world from his perspective. And from his perspective, he's purifying people who can then worship him in a manner worthy of his name. Now, when Malachi talks about this, he does not envision a universal application of this prophecy to all people of God, like the Gentiles and the Jews. But he does emphasize that at his coming, there will be a purifying judgment of the people of God. And I believe that this will be ultimately and finally fulfilled in the judgment seat of Christ when believers will be judged for their works in the kingdom of God. And we find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul tells us there, and this is for all believers, all believers will face Christ as our judge 
at the judgment seat of Christ. Let me just read it, and I want you, as you listen to this, see the similarities to the refining fire of Malachi. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. The judgment seat of Christ in Scripture is always associated with the day of the Lord and His coming. It is closely related to the rapture of all believers who will then stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We don't have time to go into all the details of this, but the judgment seat of Christ is for those who are believers, whose eternal salvation is guaranteed because their lives are built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And at the judgment seat of Christ, all believers will be judged for their work as servants in the kingdom of God and how they build the kingdom based on that foundation of Jesus Christ. Some of the key factors that Jesus will evaluate in his role as our judge are the extent to which we have been salt and light, our obedience to him, our faithfulness, and how much fruit we have borne. Paul explains that both he and Apollos and any others who work to promote and expand the kingdom will be judged for their work. So God judges us for the work we do in the kingdom. Good work for the kingdom is like gold and silver and precious stones. And for these we will receive rewards. Bad work is like wood, hay, and stubble. And bad work is what is done in our own human efforts to impress others rather than for the glory of God. And the bad works will be burned up, and those will suffer loss. Remember, Malachi said, this is going to not be a very pleasant day. This is like a refiner's fire, the dross of the old sinful nature in us will be burned away and its sins 
taken out. We will be purified completely. We will finally be free of sin and its power over our lives. We will be completely and totally transformed into the image of his son. And this is necessary so that we can dwell in the sinless presence of God. It'll be a terrifying moment, but it'll also be a glorious moment when we will be purified and cleansed as silver and gold in the furnace, and we will emerge as people totally and completely refined and purified before him. Because that's what he wants, that we will be worthy to worship him in a way that's glorifying to him. Now, please do not confuse this judgment seat of Christ with the great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter 20. There it says, And I saw a great white throne, and with him sitting on it, and from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and a place was not found for them. And I saw the dead, the small and the great, stand before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works, and the sea gave up the dead in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead in them, and each one of them was judged according to their works, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is a second death, and if anyone was found having been written in the book of life, if not found having his name written in the book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire." This throne judgment is for unbelievers. And this is where their eternal fate will be decided by a just and omnipotent God who knows the hearts of all people. And those who have accepted Christ as Savior, and therefore they have their name written in the book of life, will be saved but all others will be cast into the lake of fire. Now notice, there's fire for both judgments, a refiner's fire and the consuming fire of the lake of fire. The refiner's fire of the judgment seat of Christ will purify, but the fire of the great white throne judgment will consume and destroy. We have a choice to make, and in this life we can decide which judgment seat we will stand before God. Please consider for yourself and make sure that you have made the decision to put your trust in Jesus Christ to let him take your sin and wash them by the blood that he shed on Calvary's cross, and that you are trusting him to cleanse you of all sin, 
and that you're going to allow him to be the Lord and master of your life. Then your name is written in the book of life. And he can rescue you from that second judgment. At the acceptable time, I heard you, Jesus said, and in the day of salvation, I help you. Behold, now, now, today is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of your salvation. So what are we to learn? What are we to conclude about this study of the refiner's fire and the judgment seat of Christ? I think we must realize that there's something far more important than suffering and justice in this life. Something far more important is at stake. The real goal that God has in mind for us is not to fix the injustices of this world, but to prepare us for the real world of life with God, which is to come. We need to realign our lives with the purposes of God. You see the graphic, I think, on the screen for this book. Do you see all those squiggly lines? Our life is all in a mess. It's in chaos. We're going in every direction. We're torn up by the injustices and the inconveniences and the suffering. But God wants us to align our life with his purposes, not ours. We need to see it gets straightened out. The line gets straightened out when we align our life with his. And what is his purpose? We dare not lose sight of this. His purpose is to prepare us for the next life, which is more real than this life. To prepare us and perform in us the operation that is necessary so that we can dwell with him in his sinless presence. I want you to listen to the end of all history when he declares I've arrived at my goal. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the new heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, purified. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. That's what he wants. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, nor for the former things have passed, to, passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Take seriously what I'm saying. And he said to me, It's done. I've accomplished my purpose. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That's what God wants. Grief and anguish of this life, suffering and even death, will all be conquered and banished. And all sin and iniquity will be cast out, and we will be completely purified. Finally, at the judgment seat of Christ, so that we can dwell with him in his holy city and his glorious presence forever. But sometimes we get so wrapped up in the struggles of this life and of this world that we lose sight of what God is planning for us in the next life. Our suffering is light and temporary, but it is producing for us an eternal glory that is greater than anything we can imagine. We don't look for things that can be seen, but for things that can't be seen. Things that can be seen are only temporary, but things that can't be seen last forever. Oh, how we need to get this straight. This temporary world of suffering and injustice will not last forever. And compared to the next world, it is nothing. It's life with him that is our reality. And we need to live with that reality. And it is this hope of the future life with God that makes life now bearable and worth living. First Peter chapter 1 now for a little while, you may have to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, which through perishable, though perishable is tested by fire, may redound to the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith today produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
so that you can dwell with him in his presence. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I think that's why Paul said, for me to live is Christ. But to die would be even better. He said he desired this communion and fellowship with God so much that he was willing to pay any price. He says it like this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What are you pursuing today? What price will you pay in order to gain Christ and to be found in him, refined and purified, so that you can worship him in a manner worthy of his name? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, so many times we have gotten wrapped up in the unfairness and injustices of this world. Life is hard, it's difficult, it's unfair, and Lord, we do need your help, but help us to remember this is all temporary. Your goal is to prepare us for a life with you in your presence forever. And that is reality. Oh God, will you purge us and cleanse us even now so that when we meet you before the judgment seat of Christ, our works will not all be burned up, but we will receive the rewards for having served you faithfully in this life. Oh God, realign our lives with the purpose of God today. And we pray this in your name. Amen. That concludes LifePoint Church's podcast. For more information about our church, visit sharethelife.org.